Hello and welcome to episode three of the Miyazaki Countdown from Some Like It Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by the Countdown crew of Scott Shelton and Jay Habib. Today on the podcast, we dive into Miyazaki's first film under the Studio Ghibli banner, 1986's fantasy adventure, Castle in the Sky. But first, Jay, Scott, how are you guys doing? Doing good, Scott. It's nice to be back after a little hiatus. Not that our listeners will ever know, but doing all right. The the heavens, you know, opened up quite a bit today in New York. It was quite the scene. If there were a castle in the sky, you certainly would not have been able to see it today. But excited to be here and excited for the stretch of Miyazaki movies we have coming up. Yeah, today in New York, we were like in the like the, the exterior of the cloud before you break into the layer that is the castle in the sky that is Laputa. That's we were in that section when there was like a hurricane happening. There wasn't literally a hurricane happening in New York, but the weather was pretty terrible for a stretch of time earlier this afternoon. Yeah, uh, so that maybe will date this podcast a little bit. I don't know, probably not. The weather is just we- weather just seems like a topic nowadays. Like, I mean, more sure. so than ever because it just just everywhere. You because know, you, don't, you don't know any of the conversation starters. You're just like, oh, the weather's it, nice. I mean, yeah. <laughs> kind of well, California you got hit. <laughs> It's coming towards the northeast now. Um, you know, we had a little bit of uh, some hurricane action, I believe, down in Florida a week or two ago. So, sure, um, lot going on in the world of weather. Uh, I, I think say, a better marker is... for for this is that there was there was the first jumps of the podcast in which we did not know yet when the boy and the heron would be releasing yeah. in the U.S. And then there's the post episode two of the, of this countdown where we now actually do know when boy and the heron is being released. So maybe that's like a better demarcator for our podcast. That's more interesting to talk about early December for the wide release Thanksgiving release for, uh, I presume New York and LA. I don't know if it'll get released more widely than that. Um, You know, if all goes well in roughly, what is that? uh, 40 hours, I will have a ticket to the boy and the heron for October 1st. So that's very exciting at the New York film festival, but you know, tune back in on the next episode where I am, you know, just miserable and uh, contemplating death. When I don't manage to get a ticket or something like that. I mean, to hell yeah, with no. me watching these in order, right, Scott? Just I mean, I watched matter. Totoro earlier this year. Like, I'm just constantly watching these movies. These movies are just, just great stuff. I understand that. And I think it's even the first um, time that we have podcasted since The Boy and the Heron premiered, possibly. Um, well, it appeared, it already premiered in Japan, but yes. If, if you're well, talking yes. about um, outside of Japan, then yeah. Outside of Japan, yes. Um, so we saw some re- reviews rolling in for that. There was also a teaser trailer released, which I'm not going to say anything North. about, of course. I don't know if... Uh, yeah. I know Scott hasn't watched it. I don't know if Jay's watched it yet. I'm not, I'm not saying it. will not be watching it. I um, delete articles from my inbox from trade magazines when they talk when when the title includes Boy and the Heron. I'm like, please leave me alone. I am block, saying block it. without the emails because I don't get those. But Block the okay. words Boy and Heron on, yeah. uh, on Twitter. I'm sorry, on X. Um, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, you're, you'll be in good shape, I think. But uh, we still have a ways to go before we get to The Boy and the Heron. Um, as mentioned, our film today is 1986's Castle in the Sky, Miyazaki's first official film under the Studio Ghibli banner. Castle in the Sky is a fantasy adventure that centers on Sheeta, voiced by Anna Paquin, a young girl who's been kidnapped by government agent Muska, played by Mark Hamill. Sheeta is the heir to the throne of Laputa, a secret island in the clouds that supposedly possesses a wealth of ancient knowledge, science, and technology. 
Muska wants to use Sheeta and her magical crystal necklace to find Laputa, but as the film opens, he's attacked by a gang of bandits led by the elderly Dola, voiced by Cloris Leachman. In the ensuing struggle, Sheeta falls from Muska's airship, but is rescued by Patsu, voiced by James Vanderbeek, a young boy with his own ties to Laputa. Hunted by both Muska and his army of accomplices, as well as Dola and her gang, Sheeta and Patsu soon embark on a dangerous journey that will eventually lead them to Laputa, where they must prevail against the odds in order to protect Laputa's treasures from falling into the wrong hands. Jay, we'll start with you. Is Castle in the Sky another thrilling and creative romp in the clouds from Miyazaki, or is Miyazaki merely digging into his bag of old tricks for a redundant fantasy adventure too reminiscent of his previous work? That's such an interesting way to phrase the question, Scott, because I think like we were saying before we hopped on, I think there are quite a few similarities between this and the first two movies that we've already talked about. Uh, however, I don't find those similarities redundant, boring, or any kind of negative. In fact, I think he uh, is improving upon them quite significantly. And I think, you know, just to tip my hand a little bit, I think this is my favorite one I've seen of the three so far. It was quite, quite the showing i did have the pleasure of seeing this in a theater uh which i didn't have with the first two scott shelton thank you for the you're pumping your fist as i say that um we're so I, back we're just so back yeah no we are i i mean it's funny because it did spoil me and now you know i've been looking really hard to see if i can uh watch any of the ones we have yet to see together in a theater and i'm having no such luck uh so i may have been spoiled but you know, getting a chance to see this on the big screen. And again, I think just as, you know, Miyazaki continues to evolve his craft, even if, you know, drawing from some of the same themes, like I found it incredibly moving, very heartfelt story, you know, another, just to dip into like, you know, one similarity, like another story where characters who are quite young uh, are, you know, going on these like monumental journeys and, you know, taking, I don't know, making decisions and acting in a way that you don't expect kids to, but, I don't know. There's, there's just something very like heartwarming and I don't know what word I'm looking for here, but there's just something really nice about it um, where, you know, it, it, it adds a certain innocence to it, but not in a way that makes the story like any less uh, serious, you know, in say the way you might feel if I described Nausicaa as cute, uh, just to go back to our last conversation, but <laughs> it, I don't know. I think it, I think it really does add something to the story. And I like that Miyazaki is using, you know, younger protagonists to tell these more exciting stories so they don't they feel less like traditional like action story like action movies we might see in the u.s um you know if these were like let's say people in their young 20s um i don't know yeah i feel like it gives it a different spin and the storytelling is as beautiful as ever and it just really worked for me yeah i, I think one of the things that Jay's touching on, and I think it's a quality that I'm going to be very repetitive about, especially as we go into this next stretch of movies, is that when I revisit this movie, and I've seen this film, I think, three or four times now, it's just, it always feels like it's almost like a warm embrace. It just feels so familiar. It feels so welcoming. It feels, not that there aren't very serious subject matter to dissect and themes to talk about, because I think that they're there are, just like in Nausicaa, I think there are deeper ambitions, thematic ambitions in the film, if you want to engage on that level. But like some of the greatest, quote unquote, you know, kids in movies out there, the great animated movies, is that they are approachable for children and they are also approachable for adults. And I think that 
one of the beauties and one of the reasons why Castle in the Sky is, at least as of right now, and I'm curious to see how this develops as we go through sort of methodically through the full filmography of Miyazaki. But one of the reasons why it, it is one of my favorites of his of his oeuvre is that it just sort of feels like it hits every single trope of the fantasy adventure genre in a way that doesn't feel like like redundant like whether you want to say redundant or whether cliche is the right thing like they pro like if you just put them on paper they probably are those things like are cliche but something about the manner in which it's the story is told and the different themes and storytelling tactics are used it just felt it just feels right to me when i watch this movie it's two hours long it flies by it has like you can tick through it just feels like there's so many inspiration like this is inspired so many things in the genre, even even though I understand that a lot of these things came before this film was made. Obviously, this film was what made in the made in the eighties, and it seems like there's definitely adventure movies that set the genre up before that. But it feels like it sort of captures everything that came before it and inspired everything that came after it in that fan and specifically the fantasy adventure genre. But when I'm watching this movie, I'm like, if there was an Indiana Jones movie that made me feel this way, it'd be great. Right. Like it, it, at the at its core, it like is this fantasy adventure tale. They're after a treasure, this sort of fabled treasure that most people don't think exists. And they get there. And obviously there is a more personal investment for both of these people in the treasure that they're seeking. But like it really is at its core, this sort of action adventure film. And though it has this fantasy twist to it, so it feels it doesn't feel as something as like close to reality as something like Indiana Jones might at times although it certainly departs from reality and certain elements of those films. But I think that it sort of has that at its core. And the characters, I think what Jay's talking about there is like using younger protagonists. As we sort of talked about in the Nausicaa podcast, I think that that's a really important tactic that, that Miyazaki uses because I think that it makes them even more relatable, even more empathetic. Like you have this kid who longs, for his lost father, he has the surrogate father and family and the mining community that he works with. You have Sheeta, who has been kidnapped and has this legacy sort of on her shoulders and is supposed to guide the future of what this, you know, Laputian civilization is or what it isn't. And I think that although these are fantastical stories, they also have deeply um, relatable, like emotional cores of belonging, of finding your family, of understanding what's right and like doing what's right and wrong. Like they're very basic stuff and told in very simple ways, but their beauty is almost in their simplicity. And I think that one of the things that the castle in the sky is such like a monumental achievement of is, is that it's able to take all those quote unquote cliche tropes, tell them in a very simple way and have it just be like utterly captivating. And I'm just totally along for the ride every time this movie starts. Yeah, I enjoy the movie, too, because I enjoy all of Miyazaki's movies. I don't think I'm quite as over the moon for it, perhaps, as you guys are. I actually do think I like both of the other movies that we've watched a little bit more than this one. Um, I mean, again, I like the, I really like the movie, so don't get me wrong on that. Um, I think, you know, some of maybe what Scott is saying about it being that, you know, action-adventure film at its core... Um, I don't know. I felt like I lost a little bit in the in the way of characterization um, because it was maybe more focused on the the action adventure aspects of 
of the movie. Like I didn't feel as drawn to these characters as I was in the other movies. And yes, of course the castle of Cagliostro is a similar sort of thing. Like it's a genre movie as we talked about. Um, but I at least had like the banter there between um, Lupin and whatever his uh, sidekick's okay. name is. I can't remember. Yeah. Um, that I thought was really fun. I don't think you have quite that level of, um, I don't know, engagement with the characters here. At least I didn't. I think the voice performances are actually really strong in this movie. Um, and so that gives me something to hold on to. But I don't know. I, maybe some of it comes from Patsu himself because I just am not a huge fan of Patsu the kid uh, for a large part of this movie. I don't think he's doing a whole lot to uh, justify his purpose in this movie. Um, he's kind of a little bit of a simp. I was saying this before the podcast, but um, there's this one moment in the movie where Sheeta is like lamenting, you know, that, you know, she used the crystal or whatever and the robots got destroyed and she's, you know, very upset about that. And she's kind of like saying that she regrets, you know, that she did it or whatever. And Patsu's like, well, yeah, but if you had, you know, then we never would have met. And I'm like, okay, man, like, just relax. Like, you're, this is not the most important thing that's going on here. That was just kind of, the, that kind of energy just emanates from him. He's like a little bit of a puppy dog at times. And it got a little bit on my nerves. But then when we get to the last part of the movie, specifically when they get to Laputa, I'm all in on that part of the movie. I think that part is awesome. And I mean, again, that's not to say that I don't like the rest of the movie too, but um, I wish that maybe the, the rest of the movie had been a bit more like that. I, I don't know. It just feels like a, a slight waste perhaps that we don't get to Laputa until like the last 30 minutes of the movie because it is a really cool place. I really like the part, the first part where they're just sort of walking around before any, before any of the villains ever get there. Right. And they're just kind of like exploring Laputa. They encounter like the friendly robot and are just, it's very, you know, peaceful. There's no music going or anything. Like I, I enjoy that. Uh, part of the movie maybe that might be my, even my favorite part of the movie um, so I, I do like it overall but again I do think there are, are a few things which like don't draw me in as much I do think there's a little bit of retreading some things and I just don't have a relationship to the fantasy genre as much as you know you as much as Scott does for example so I know some of your appreciation for this movie sort of comes from that greater context, like you're already sort of talking about. Um, and I don't necessarily take that away from it just because I don't have that background. So I don't know. There, were, there just felt like a little bit of something missing that level of emotional connection that I did feel in the other movies, um, particularly in Nausicaa, which again, I, I think is my favorite movie that we've watched so far um, that maybe puts this in the lower tier of Miyazaki's movies for me but it's still i mean it's a romp like it is you know fun to watch the action is really cool you have some great joe hisaishi music as always um you know it, it just felt, I, don't, I don't know maybe it was just watching these three movies in the order that we did that we have watched them it just felt like you know they're flying around and <laughs> it just felt a little like i've seen this uh, recently and um i'm sure it does you know it would stand out if i watched it under a different 
context and it does stand out against other animated films of course but you know looking at it specifically under the lens of Miyazaki's movies and what we've watched so far um, I can't help but notice some of the similarities and I just the wish the characters we had are so different characters. I mean the characters are completely different in each of the three the movies. characters are yes I agree but I mean just in terms of you know the the airships, like all of that stuff is pretty similar. Oh, buddy. <laughs> okay. I know. You're, I know. You're in a really tired airships then. <laughs> I have seen most of these movies. Don't, don't forget that. Um, but yeah, I, I wish I could put my finger on it. But again, I think it does come back to I'm not that invested in Sheeta and Patsu as characters and in their relationship. Definitely not compared to, you know, again, the characters in the other movies that we've watched, different though they may be. Yeah, I think that your mileage your mileage may vary. This isn't like a this isn't like a retort to your what you're saying about your lack of investment in Patsu and Sheeta. But I think it not I mean Nausicaa is a younger protagonist as well, but this is the first time we're getting two at like children to be the two protagonists yeah. who are bouncing off each other. And I think that that naturally creates a new a new dynamic, right? Because like Nausicaa was mostly like a solitary protagonist. But when she was bouncing off of other characters, you're talking, you know, you're, you're bouncing off of like sort of the elder statesman with the um, I forget the name of the advisor that you, that she that she would often that she like meets at the beginning of the movie um, or she's like meeting with dignitaries from other countries, basically. Like she's she's a child in like an adult world, more or less. And, you know, Castle of Cagliostro, obviously, Clarice is like a young adult, like she's not really a child anymore. And obviously, Lupin and, and Jigen are slightly older. So it, it, I think that, that what keeps this movie different and, and why you might feel differently, you know, it doesn't bother me, but it sounds like it might bother you. It's just like the fact that you have these two, like ostensibly preteens, right? Like they're, they're kids, yeah. they're children, right? Who are doing this. And I mean, look, statement of working kids in the minds aside here, we can dive into that uh, topic later on, maybe, I don't know. But um, I, I think that what that creates is this sort of really sort of almost like hyper earnest conversations that happen between Shida and Patsu, especially Patsu, who's like ostensibly an orphan. Like, it seems like he's an orphan. I can't remember if it's explicitly stated or not. Like his dad is obviously not around anymore. And I don't really know if there's much to talk about his mother. And I think he's really seeking family. It's why he wants to go on Dola's ship later in the movie. Like he wants to have this sort of family. And I don't think that it, I don't know exactly know. And maybe Jake and Wayne, cause you did watch, you did watch the sub, not the dub, but like it does some of that level of like longing for family come through in the language that is used around the Dola gang. I mean, they're calling her mom, they're calling her mother. And although he's obviously, it's like unclear who the protagonist and who the antagonists are earlier in the movie. Like he obviously does warm up to joining them initially to save, um, to save Sheeta from, you know, being captured by Muska at the, at the palace before they take off. But it's also separately, like he doesn't have a family. Like he has the minors. He has this sort of like surrogate father figure, but he doesn't really have a true family. And I think that he's seeking that. And then I think that sort of, it, like, even though we, that sort of comment that you were talking about is like an eye rolly type comment, like, oh, we wouldn't have met. And like, that is, that is definitely like a cringe type comment, but like, 
he's like 11 or 12. Like it, it almost makes yeah. sense for him as a character to be saying that. Now, whether, again, that's not to say that you should like it because it's authentic. Like it feels yeah. right. I'm not saying that, but like, to me, it, it's cringe, but not in a way that, that turn like, it's not so persistent that it turns me off of it. And I can be like, this is just part of who Patsu is as a character. And does it make him the most compelling protagonist in a film that we're going to watch in this countdown? No, it, it doesn't. But I do think that that is intentional. Again, whether that works for you is, is a question, but I sort of like that element of the character because in many ways, that's the reason why the film feels different in his protagonist for me is because it's not just Sheeta who is like this like solitary like person on an adventure to like reclaim her like rightful kingdom in Laputa. It is she like the the I mean in many ways I think the narrative is really driven by the relationship between the two of them and the fact that they are both highly motivated to find Laputa before Muska and without you know even before they realize who Muska even is. And I think that not that either of them would have wouldn't have been able to go to Laputa on their own, but like it's almost like they're their being together almost motivates them to keep going, especially after Muska after they know that Muska knows where the where Laputa is. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I understand that what you're saying and that yeah. they are children, but just doesn't appeal to me as much. I think that's that's ultimately what it comes down to is children sure. can be annoying sometimes. And I think there are moments of that in the, the movie. I don't mean to sound unsympathetic, but I'm I'm really I mean, I'm, I'm nitpicking with this movie because we're going to be nitpicking to find issues with any of these movies being quite honest as we get through the series um so you know there were just a couple things that stood out to me more so than in the movies other movies we watched and other movies that we probably will watch so i'd be remiss if i didn't point those out um especially because i know you guys are like really really positive on on this one and i am obviously still positive just a little bit on a lower plane i also think some of the humor is a little bit hit and miss again like the Dola and her 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 boys or whatever. I liked Dola a lot. I liked Cloris Leachman's voice performance there. The boys and all the mom stuff, like it gets old after a little bit for me. Um, but they are, you know, fun sidekick characters, I guess, to have. And I think Musco's a, a, you know, strong villain too. Definitely a memorable villain. And, you know, we'll, we can transition to talking about the voice cast a little bit because I think Mark Hamill's performance is one of the reasons why he's a strong villain. But um, we have Anna Paquin, who was already an Oscar winner when this dub was recorded. Um, we have uh, James Vanderbeek as Patsu. Um, of course, I've already mentioned there, Mark Hamill as Muska, Cloris Leachman as Dola, Mandy Patinkin as one of the, the boys. Um, and I think those are kind of the major members of the, the ensemble here. Jay, I know you didn't, unfortunately, have the, the benefit of watching the dub. One of these days, we will have all watched the dub of the movie. I think we're 0 for 3 thus far, but um, we, we may get there with, uh, with Totoro next. But uh, Scott, what, who stood out to you from the voice cast in this movie? I mean, it's definitely Mark Hamill. I think that when you think about like iconic voice performances, I, I'll be honest, like I think this is the first one if you're talking to English dubs here. I think this is sort of the first really iconic Ghibli performance. I think there's good things to talk about. We talked about them in the Nausicaa dub, but this is the first time where you have somebody of Mark Hamill's quality like really plugged in to 
to this. I mean, there's a reason why this guy has one of the most prolific voice, like voice acting animation careers. And Jay, you didn't get the benefit of this, but if you close your eyes and watch this movie, you can hear the Joker. That's all I'm going to say. You can absolutely hear the Joker when you're watching this movie. I mean, yeah, he gets pretty maniacal towards the end. Like when they're in Lapidan, he's going on his like speeches about like, uh, I don't know, like harnessing all this power and stuff. Like it's, yeah. uh, it's pretty uh, enjoyably over the top to watch. I love the moment where the, the freaking army guys are like, oh, great job, man. You're a, tr you're a credit to your country or something. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and he, he kills enjoy them. This yeah. Enjoy this reward. Bang, bang, bang. But he's yeah. like a hologram. <laughs> I was like, man, you guys really thought you did something there with that. Yeah, the, the general was trying to cook, but it didn't work out for him yeah. so well. Uh, yeah, I, I just think that he, he really stakes a claim in this performance. I gotta say, I forget every time that Anna Paquin is key, is a Kiwi, and when she starts talking, I'm like, oh my god, what's happening yeah. right now? <laughs> She's from New Zealand. What? Um, so that was that's always like a funny reminder because I just feel like there's there's a lot of movies where she's doing the American accent. Like I just forget that she's that she's from New Zealand. And but yeah, that, she's fine. Like she's not a huge. I think just because Mark Hamill is, is so resonant in this movie in terms of the performance that he gives, like it's he's so authoritative that I think he does overshadow some other people. But sure, like Cloris Leachman, Anna Paquin, I think they're they're giving solid performances. And but it's it's like really all about Mark Hamill. If we're just talking about the voice cast, Jay, you did have a comment you want to make. I understand. Yeah, and it it won't be actually about any specific performance, but rather, so what, other than the fact that I was able to see this in a theater, you know, I I have gone through every week and tried to see if there seems to be a consensus on whether dub versus sub is better for particular movies. And one thing that was pointed out to me and that I thought was very true is that this movie at least in the sub was very quiet. Like there are long stretches where there's apparently no dialogue, uh, like compared to where, like compared to the dub, um, like apparently they just added in a bunch of filler and you have like, you know, like stretches of like a minute here, two minutes there, two minutes there where you're just not hearing anything. Um, I wonder, I mean, like I, I obviously don't know what that added dialogue is. I wonder if some of that is the dialogue that Scott Harvey, you're like maybe not vibing with, but the there there i found those long stretches to be just like i don't know quite what's the word mesmerizing just because again the animation is so pretty and you're just kind of watching the story unfold and you're not being like you know expositionally beat to death we are in movies these days where they just kind of have to over explain every single line or what's going on and just keep talking right um so i don't know if if either of you are intrigued by that or if anyone else is like i you know i did think that that worked really well for this obviously do regret missing out on some of the iconic voice performances that you guys have talked about but you know i'm like we were saying before i'll probably get around to watching this dubbed as well yeah i feel like i do next time i do watch because then i have seen this quite a few times now with the with the dub I, i'd be curious to watch the sub for that because I can't remember if Paul said on mic or off mic last time, but he also mentioned that it is a it is a dub that is famous for filling in gaps, um, maybe unnecessarily so. So I'd be curious how how the experience differs. You know, that's it's always one of those interesting things to talk about. I, I guess in that regard, you know, we have brought the diversity of perspectives on our three episodes because we have brought people who had the dub and the the sub. But I think knock on wood we're gonna be all 
dubbing it up from here on out. But yeah, I agree with Scott's comments about the voice cast. Um, Mark Hamill, I think, is excellent. Just paints a very vivid picture of this villain. Um, I do think he's a he's a more more memorable villain than we get in the other movies that we've talked about. So I think that's a a strong you know, one of the strengths of this movie over those previous films, like I said. And yeah, Anna Paquin, I mean, look, she won a, an Oscar as a child. So if anyone can bring the, you know, sort of gravitas and and everything to a, a performance as a child, you know, you can count on her to do that. And I think she does that here as this more sort of stoic, thoughtful character of Sheeta, who is like, you know, really sort of trying to despite being a child again despite being somewhat immature i guess as we're talking about really trying to like think deeply about the power that she has has you know as the heir to lapida as the person who possesses this crystal necklace and you know how does she want to use that power what does it mean you know can she be responsible about it despite the fact that she's you know just just a kid and, and obviously, so the film's I, take, taking a pretty hard stance on the fact that, you know, she, the child in the situation, and Patsu as well to an extent, but like, it is her innocence and purity that is sort of untainted by like the greed of adulthood that it causes. And it's something that we saw in Nausicaa. You could argue maybe there's like a little bit of, there's like a tinge of that in Cagliostro. But I think this is the one where it sort of, it really is reinforcing that that theme and following up on that theme that I think we talked about in the last episode that really highlights, you know, there's this like corruption inherent with growing up, like growing a, a bit older that uh, that sort of like leaves behind a level of purity and like almost like moral ethic that children are able to access more easily than some adults. I mean, yeah, like, they have to make a decision in the end of this movie to destroy this entire, you know, world, just destroy this entire, you know, island really with this particular spell because um, they understand that they can't let this, you know, knowledge and everything fall into the, the wrong hands. And obviously that's not a, a light decision for a couple of 11 year olds or however old they're supposed to be to be making so um what you're saying there is is very true it's definitely reckoning with that well the beauty of lapida is that at least the garden area still survives yes unclear whether that's like in the sky or it like literally goes into space and <laughs> just like goes on because it like disappears right it, like up into the sky which is kind of confusing. i can't remember do we see our robot friend at the end surely he makes it right uh I don't know if we explicitly see him or not, but I mean, he's like in the like he tends the gardens though, so he's right, sure he's yeah. there. Because it's That's just the it's just the bottom falls off when they <laughs> use the spell, like the actual like yes, scientific laboratory yes. and stuff like that is what falls off. Mm -hmm. And Muska just sort of falls into oblivion, but um, and he's blinded. Yes, tough way to go. Um, but yeah, anyway, the point is, you know, it's it's really entrusting these children characters with big decisions and, you know, affirming their ability to make those decisions. Moving on, um, you know, we have talked about this movie as sort of an action adventure 
film. And I do think there are quite a few sort of set pieces in the movie. There's, you know, some action scenes in the beginning when um, Patsu and Cheetah are kind of trying to, you know, escape from the clutches of these various, you know, groups that are drawing them in. They then team up with Dola and the boys. And there's another, you know, long sort of action sequence that goes on involving the airships, involving the robots. Um, as Muska and, you know, his men are, are closing in. Um, and then, you know, there's some more um, action as we get to Laputa, the army and Muska and everyone arrives. And, um, you know, we kind of have the final showdown there. Um, what did you guys think about, you know, sort of the set pieces here? You know, we've, you can tie that in with talking about the animation, perhaps we're kind of, we kind of been talking about how the animation um, has perhaps evolved. This is the first film that he does under the Studio Jubilee name, as we've said. Do you notice any sort of difference, improvement, enhancement, anything as far as the visuals are concerned in this movie? I mean, it's it's hard to say because it does feel like, at least if I compare this to Cagliostro, the animation styles are a little bit distinct. I mean, they're, they're just different, right? So even though I would probably say of the three we've seen so far, this feels maybe the most polished overall. Um, I think there's enough different in the way that they're trying to portray, you know, the first one versus this one uh, where it doesn't necessarily feel accurate to say it's a strict upgrade. That being said, you know, if we're going to talk about like, you know, obviously you mentioned some action sequences. I think the ultimate destruction of Laputa is maybe one of the most gorgeous things I've seen just on screen. Um, you know, again, it was in the theater and like, you know, it, we, it felt like we were, you know, all just kind of like at a very low frequency, just like vibrating quietly as we were watching this happen. Like, you know, you could just like feel something in the air. And, you know, in, in terms of like actual action sequences, like the, the, tr the jumping on the train cars is one, you know, that I just think back to. I thought that one was pretty fun. Um, again, just like well done, you know, it, it's hard, you know, if I compare that to maybe a chase sequence in Cagliostro, again, it just feels like they're done in such a different way that, you know, it, it's a weird comparison, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure maybe one of your more technical eyes could tell me, oh yeah, well, it's done this way and that's why it looks so much better or whatnot. So I will kick it over to Scott. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely echo what you're saying around this being the most polished of the films we've watched so far. I think even one of the things that I think I might have said it last time, or if not, then I said it in the first episode, was that one of the one of the interesting parts about that I hadn't necessarily noticed before when I watched Nausicaa, um, and and I'd never seen Cagliostro before, is that the hand-drawn animation is beautiful, but it did seem like it, it, it wasn't as detailed as maybe as I would have as I would have imagined or or liked. And I often, especially as I've rewatched these movies, like my eyes will just drift to other parts of the screen and see what sort of details or, or little things here and there that you pick up that you aren't necessarily going to be keyed into on, on a first watch. And I think this is the first movie where I really felt like, oh, not always the case, but like there's actually a lot of other details in the margins, I think, of this movie. And I think even more so than Nausicaa, I think this sort of like steampunk town like mining town that's like built into the cliff walls that Patsu lives in I think there's a ton of detail in that I think the animation's awesome and I think it's just a really cool setting another thing that sort of sets itself apart from sort of the dystopian wasteland and like almost like 
it's not Italian countryside, but the kind of vibe that I always get or that I got from Cagliostro was that it's like this like Italian countryside. Like if you told me that this like Cagliostro was in the middle of like like Western Central Europe, like situated between like France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, whatever, like I'd be like, yeah, that makes sense to me Uh, because it kind of has that vibe to it, I think. Whereas like this feels like it is distinct, like it has kind of like a British vibe to it at times, but then you have these like cliff walls that it's like built into is like very, I think it's very distinct in its animation and also in like the set, like the feelings that the settings trying to evoke. It's much more, you know, working class, obviously like Nausicaa is dystopian. This is not, but it, it feels like this is sort of like what I would point to if someone asked me, what is the steampunk genre look like? I'd say it's like something like this. Right, this sort of like tech, like retro futuristic vibe that it's like it looks like this movie is set a hundred plus years ago, but has technology that we don't even have today. It's like this very unique thing that I feel like Miyazaki sort of evokes in his movies and through his animation style. And I mean, frankly, I don't know if there's like another way to really make this and make it look good other than this sort of a hand drawn animation style. And I do think that the details and the margins really picked up i think the the it, it there's just a lot more there in my experience especially i'm talking about the coal mining town i assume it's coal i don't actually know what they're mining a mining town but i think that's also true what jay's talking about there when you get to laputa and i think scott even maybe what you were alluding to earlier when they're just walking around the gardens yeah. when they first land it's like all of a sudden you the film reminds you that this isn't just action adventure it's trying to evoke feelings with setting it's trying to evoke feelings of um sort of like appreciation for nature for what the world has to offer and i think the actual way it looks through the animation is really important for that and i think it accomplishes that really well and that last part you're talking about is certainly going to be something that we're going to want to revisit on our next episode because he really leans into um that side of his filmmaking and storytelling with my neighbor Totoro. It's all about sort of the the gentle vibes of that, you know, first few minutes there on Lapida for sure. And like you say, the appreciation for nature and all of that. Sure. Um, so I yeah, I, I really I really like how the movie looks. Of course, I mean that it's kind of obvious to say, but um, uh, you know the Lapida stuff. I like the like the robots, for example. You know, they look like the freaking iron giant right like i was like gonna say like the iron giant influence a hundred percent that must be inspired yeah by this. i think it has to be um but and yeah there is a lot of detail there is a lot of creativity and 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 stuff but also i like the simplicity of it at times like the final sort of showdown again that the three of them have that muska patsu and um and uh, Shida have is like they're in like this I guess they're like underground or something aren't they like and it, it's it's basically just black and they're just like in in the water Un- underground as far as you can be I guess yes right um there's not a whole lot sky. going on though though visually <laughs> yes right in, right I in lap in lap you're talking in lapita sorry in this one scene in this particular scene I'm saying there's not a whole lot going on visually because he is making the conscious decision to focus on the characters at this moment right and 
you know, I, I, you know, that, that is, I think really great filmmaking skill when he can also show that restraint. It doesn't all ha always have to be, look at what I can do with, you know, the, the visuals with the animation here. Um, Even in those there scenes though, there's like, that. there's like cool details where they have like yeah. the statues of the robots sort of, sur I mean, like they look like robots. I don't know if they're actually meant to be robots or if they're meant to be like Lapushin like people i don't even know what they're supposed to represent but I, I think that like that's like a level of detail that i don't really think we've had in some of these movies yet right like because you're right obviously a lot of the focus is being placed on the climax of the film but at the same time there's like a level of detail if this is like supposed to be the throne room i think is what muska says or whatever and you see the detail that is still there even though it is sort of more like gray and like solid walls and whatnot, right? There's not a ton of light flowing through. There's no plants or gardens. There's no gardens down in that area of the city, but there's still sort of like texture to be had, I think, in the experience, which I think is one of the things that start you start to see sort of the animation style becoming, you know, more and more detailed. Yeah, so that's sort of the animation, you know, there. I think we're all kind of agreed. He's, he's polishing it out, and we're going to you know, obviously continue to see advancements in that, but... I like, you know, again, the creativity of what he's doing, but also when he can show that restraint and, you know, make us focus where he wants us to focus, which in these final moments is on the characters. Um, set pieces, again, I, I brought them up. Scott, you know, did you enjoy them? Obviously you did. Uh, what, what did you, which did you like in particular? What stood out to you? Yeah, I'm a big fan of all of them. I feel like there's, I mean, there's three or four sprinkled throughout, depending on how you would specifically de define a set piece. But there's like the, well, there's the very brief set piece at the very beginning of the movie on the airship. But I, I sort of, if you blend that together with like them being chased through the mining town as well, like along the train tracks, like, I think that's cool. It's the first time where it felt it really feels like there's like a truly, in my opinion, like truly kinetic scene that's taking place in his films. Like even in Cagliostro and Nausicaa, a lot of the action doesn't really have that same sort of like fluid quality. You have Nausicaa like kiting these massive bugs, but like she's never really like balletically like fighting or like we think that she's capable of it, but she's not really exhibiting that. Or if she is, it's it's very in, in very short bursts. Whereas I feel like this is a quite extended scene of like them trying to get away from the Dola gang, for example. And I, and I think that that sort of sets a, a different kind of tone for the action scenes that are happening in this movie. And then you sort of have like your biggest set piece uh, of the film when the robot awakens in the basement of the castle and then starts this sort of like destructive battle inside the castle burning half the castle to the ground. Like that's the kind of stuff that I think we saw that's like more akin to, I think maybe what we've seen in previous, in the previous two movies we've talked about here, but even that, like sort of the raw power of the, of the robot, it, it does such a good job sort of like framing that even someone like Sheeta is like really afraid of this robot. Like, even though it looks like it is on her side, like she's very afraid of it. It is sort of this mysterious unknown thing from a past she doesn't really fully understand. And I think it gives you, I mean, at least it gives me like mixed emotions, right? Like this thing is helping her, but something's not right at the same time. And I think it, it gives you this sense of unease 
going into them seeking out Lapida, like what that what that experience is going to be like. Not that it not that you're feeling like it's going to be some sort of monkey paw, but the fact that the set piece can be both kind of beautiful and like a horrifying way, but also sort of set the tone for what you're going to get and almost foreshadow later on in the movie, how you're going to feel when you reach Lapida, I think is like a real accomplishment for a set piece. And then, yeah, of course, there's also a brief sort of fight in the sky that's not really a, a action set piece. And then and then Laputa, which I think we've already talked a little bit about. I think it's a really brilliant choice by Miyazaki to not necessarily have this long, drawn out fight like this. He almost like dilutes the set piece down into Shida and Patsu realizing that they're not going to defeat Muska and we've talked about sort of like the climactic choice that Patsu convinces Shida to make to destroy sort of the scientific tech that sort of un undergirds Laputa. But yeah, I just think it's sort of, it's sort of like a brilliant evolution in that. And I mean, not to give too much away, but like, it's going to be a little while before you have a set piece again, like this in a Miyazaki movie. So it's really interesting that he sort of lays all this stuff out in Castle in the Sky, he was doing a little bit of it in Nasca. He was doing a little bit of it in Cagliostro, but he really puts a lot of those pieces together and involves them and says, and it kind of, you kind of get the sense that he's like, all right, this is like, I did it. I did what I wanted to do with action set pieces. I'm going to shift gears, Scott. Like you were talking about like this whole idea of, of nature and, and, and what that might have to do with Totoro. Like, I think that's, that's like a big pivot that he goes to in the next few movies where it's not that there aren't any quote unquote set pieces in these movies, but what those look like are just very different. And I think that, you know, what he manages to achieve in Castle in the Sky is like a big accomplishment. Anyone get some uh, Dead Reckoning Part 1 vibes from the uh, the whole train chase sequence that happens? Uh, maybe I'm stretching a little bit with it there. But, yeah, you're stretching a little bit for I'm sure. I'm going to say, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Don't, don't think I the whole there. just the cars detaching and stuff like that. I don't sure. know. It, it, had some, it had some Dead Reckoning vibes. Look, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to talk about that. We say, you know, save me five minutes at the end about all the different things that this movie has clearly inspired. Yeah. I'm happy to add Dead Reckoning Part 1 to this list, but I hadn't originally planned on talking about Dead Reckoning Part 1 during that, right now, <laughs> during that corner of the I'm Just of the trying to find the reference point here. I will say that, that, that... We need to add a disclaimer that says no national monuments were harmed in the making of this train sequence. That's this true. Movie. Unlike Dead Reckoning Part 1. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, I will say that probably was my favorite set piece in the movie, though, just because I like the grounded nature of, like, the chase through the town... Like, you know, you have the townspeople sort of getting involved and everything. Um, and then, I mean, yeah, yeah the, the scene where where the miner whose name I can't remember off the top of my head, yeah. um, who's like the father figure, is like fronting up to like one of Dola's. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is just like, is that the origin of like the people doing like the slap contest? Like, how hard can I slap you before <laughs> you react or whatever? Like, that's like, like, that is it, right? It does feel that way. Um, but yeah, uh, so that that was my favorite because again, you know, the the grounded stuff is generally what I'm drawn to um, in in these movies, and that felt that felt like something. You know, you're referencing Indiana Jones earlier again. I'm bringing up Mission Impossible. Yeah. You know, it felt like something out of one of those movies, and so I enjoyed that part of it. Those really grounded movies where aliens appear and people jump out of airplanes. And base jump off cliffs. Those really grounded films. Yeah, I mean that's true. You know what I mean. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, I'm messing with you. I know what you mean. 
I don't count that one Indiana Jones. Actually, I don't count the last two because they they both stunk. But um, but I mean, but, all four, all four or five Indiana Jones movies, depending on if you want to count all of them or not. Like they all have some. I mean, yeah, no, the first one ends with it. with guys' faces melting off when <laughs> yeah, the natural yeah. heart gets open. So the second um, one, someone's heart gets ripped out of their chest, or right. multiple people's hearts get ripped out of their chest. The the third yeah. one, the like. No, eternal life is granted from the grail there's aliens you travel back in time we can keep going like look but every time he says this belongs in a museum that really just brings me back to earth sure that's yeah very ground that's what i was missing right. in this movie i'm like <laughs> we just needed well patsu to say you no muska this belongs in a museum <laughs> exactly <laughs> Your oh. point is well taken, but again, that that is why I enjoy. I 100 percent know what you mean, that, and I literally am the person who made the reference earlier, so I I, yeah. I get what you're saying. Totally. We're just having fun. Jay, but any other thoughts on this? No, but I will echo. I think that I also uh, enjoyed the train uh, chase. Uh, enjoyed it the most. Like I think, and I think I can, I can talk about the ending set piece. Uh, not as something that brings me enjoyment, but you know, other strong emotions. But I did like the grounded nature of the train set piece i am slightly disappointed to hear that we might not be getting one for a while scott shelton but i won't read into that too much you're gonna get some good delivering set pieces delivery set pieces and in, in kiki's delivery service. we got a we got a delivery service to run you haven't get you some... ever wanted to see one person bring an item from one place to another but i saw it flying when they do it see i saw it in was it spider-man 2 when toby is yeah. uh swinging the it's pizza just like that and, yeah. hey he stole that guy's pizza it's crazy spider-man another movie that was inspired by a miyazaki film yep just add yeah. it to the crazy. list yeah add it to the you'll list. you'll see that the the baker in in kiki's liver service is basically mr aziz but just you know 15 years earlier um years earlier. <laughs> anyway I don't um, think you could have offered me any amount of money to tell you that his name was mr aziz just just throwing that out there but well, go it's on. one of my it's one of my favorite movies i have yeah. to know that but no, i'll sure. throw it to, to scott uh i want to throw it back to scott for a second because you sure, didn't mention sure. this a second ago i know that you know one of the reasons that you really enjoy this movie is sort of like you say, it sort of like sets up so many of the big fantasy tropes oh, yeah. and Definitely. you know story points and everything that um, are so prevalent in the genre and kind of you know masters them from the beginning. You know, did you want to talk more about that in detail? Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that this is a real landmark of like the sort of fantasy steampunk genre. I think I briefly was mentioning that earlier. I think I even talked a little bit about it in sort of Nausicaa in a more dystopian sense. It's like a dystopian a dystopic steampunk type experience there. But this feels like core steampunk. You know, it, this inspired probably a handful of the Final Fantasy titles because each different Final Fantasy mainline game is like a different setting, different world, all fantasy. And this certainly provides a huge sort of inspiration for a lot of like the again, sort of that retro-futuristic tech, like the airships, the ornithopters, for example, that the Dola gang used to fly around and whatnot. And I just think that this whole notion of fa this like fantasy trope that this film did not originate, but I think the way in which it used it and the setting in which it used it in, like this idea of like nature and you know, one of the quotes, at least in the English dub that I like wrote down was like, the earth speaks to all of us. And if we listen, we'll understand. Like, I think that is like, obviously not the first film to sort of maybe play with that notion. But I think 
the setting that it did and the medium that it did it in terms of animation and what it brought to to the genre i think that it is a it is a big influencing factor i mean you just think about something like even more recently like legend of zelda i don't know if either of you guys have played any of those any of the recent games like breath of the wild tears of the kingdom like a hundred percent inspired by this movie not all the zelda games i would say have been inspired by this but like the vibes and the settings and and the particular manifestation of hyrule in and the most recent game like tears of the kingdom like it literally has floating aisles and floating castles in it like it's so clearly transposed onto that game and you know that's a series that existed even before this movie was made like the original legend of zelda game came out before this but it's such a powerful force i think in the video game and animation space that it's still inspiring sequels and like legacy spiritual successors and things like that to this day which i just think is sort of I just think it's remarkable that it's able to do that so effectively. And, and Scott, you talked about the Laputin robot or whatever, like that totally. I mean, I don't know if it's explicitly an inspiration for something like the Iron Giant, but I think it's really hard to watch this movie and not think of the Iron Giant at certain points if it's a movie that you know is a reference point for you and in, in movies that you've seen. Like my understanding is that the Iron, I don't know, I've never played Minecraft. I don't know if you guys have ever played Minecraft, but like the Iron Golem in Minecraft isn't, is inspired by this movie. Like there's just random stuff here and there, right. That just have a huge influence on, on all the, and you know, on, from this, from this film and, and think it's just a really powerful um, film in that sense in, in the genre. And then, I mean, some people even say a, like a film because John Laster has openly talked about how it's one of his favorite movies of all time, sort of read inspiration into like things like Wally. Right, like some of the movies that sort of draw more from robots and sort of, you know, few, you know, retro futuristic type films. Um, and at least like thematically, right? Wally, you can see the thematic overlap if you've seen that movie, Jay. I don't know if you've watched Wally or, or not, which is a, a Pixar film from the late two thousands. But you know, the the film is about a, a robot that has been abandoned on Earth and has been left to care for what little is left, and that's like more or less what the role of the Laputin robot is in the garden um, of Laputa. It's there. He's been abandoned by people who left Laputa and its job is to care for what remains. And, you know, I think the desolate nature of the world in Wally and obviously like the very lush nature of the world of Laputa, there is a difference there, but I think that there's still sort of thematic richness that sort of shares that shares between these between those two films. And I think there's just lots of reference points sort of down the line. I'm not going to go into like which Final Fantasy games and which settings it inspired more, but there's certainly a line of those types of games that are heavily influential in Japanese culture that draw more specifically from a setting and an environment like what we see in Castle in the Sky. So yeah, I just think it's cool. Uh, I, you guys, again, like you said, Scott, maybe don't have the same amount of like experience and exposure to that, but when you start to when you've seen this movie and you start to like think about some of the games that you know i've played as a kid and still play today even right if you're talking about legend of zelda games that come out like tears of the kingdom count this year right and so it's interesting to see how sort of the ripple effect of miyazaki in general but obviously we're talking about this movie specifically yeah um yeah i think his his influence is is something that we'll obviously want to talk about over the course of this series um 
because we've talked about it with the other filmmakers that, um, you know, we've talked about in the series. And that's why it would be good to have you around, Scott, among other reasons, because I think the influence uh, that he he shows is oftentimes, you know, played out in in things that I might not be as familiar with. Sure. Like you're mentioning the Zelda and Final Fantasy games. Well, I think I can it's call so out interesting the Iron Giant just because the iconography is so. Oh, sure. You know. I mean, there's like almost like a, I don't want to say it's like shot for shot or whatever, but there's like a frame that's probably very similar across the two movies with sort of at eye level looking into the robot's eyes or whatever. But I think one of, one of the interesting things, and I'd be curious, obviously everyone's experience is going to be different, but a lot of the sort of influence that we've talked about in our countdown series, with maybe the exception of, of our Star Wars countdown but like a lot of what we're talking about is just like influence on other movies and miyazaki i mean probably by nature of animation but also just by like de facto jap like a japanese cultural level that like the truth is like miyazaki is probably the most influential filmmaker that we've talked about today like if you terms like cross media at least i would say at least and then arguably in cinema too although i think that's a more interesting maybe a more interesting and nuanced discussion to have but like the fact like we haven't really talked about someone who is like truly for 40 plus years been world famous. And like Miyazaki has pretty much been world, like a world renowned Japanese animator since he made like, I mean, definitely since he made princess Mononoke, like that was like the point where he was just, everyone knew who he was in the world. And it's probably true even before that, right? Like Spirited Away happened, I think after Princess Mononoke came Spirited Away, he won the Academy Award for best, uh, best animated film. You know, he was nominated, he's been nominated multiple times since then, right? Like we're about 10 years from that point where he reached like true, you know, world renowned status. And we haven't really talked about a filmmaker who's been like true, like truly permeated all parts of society and culture in a way that Miyazaki has. Again, Star Wars may be the one exception to that, although that's not a filmmaker, obviously. George Lucas, the creator, you could make arguments, I think, for sure. But in terms of filmmakers that we've discussed, I mean, even I think we ride or die with pretty much any of the filmmakers that we've talked about on this podcast. And I think it's hard to say that yeah. it's reached that level of relevance, even even for someone like Chris Nolan or David Fincher. Not J.J. Abrams, but... <laughs> But yeah, um, something obviously that will be interesting to revisit along with some of the other themes that we've talked about, themes and images and everything that have remained sort of consistent through these first three films. Although, as we've said, I think we are going to start to see a shift a little bit in the types of movies, types of stories, perhaps, that uh, Miyazaki is interested in telling going forward, Um, which, like I said, I really enjoy this movie, but I think I'm looking forward to sort of entering this different sort of phase that we're going to get with the next two or three movies perhaps um yeah i think we can move into wrap up now for this film uh what is your favorite scene or moment from castle in the sky uh jay we'll start with you my favorite scene and i i will caveat this by saying that if you had to explain this scene to someone it probably sounds really weird and i do wonder how it came across uh in the dub uh, but there's the scene on the airship on the way to Laputa where Sheetha's cooking in the kitchen and one by one, um, you know, all the people on the ship show up and are just like, hi, like, I was wondering how I could help you. And they all, you know, like one by one, they're all there. And like, you know, Scott Harvey, maybe you didn't like this because that's just all of them simping now. But 
I was almost going to mention that earlier because I was like, Scott's talking about Patsy being a simp. Just like, it's all of the it's all of Dola's gang, really, which is and she's like worse. a child. It's just it's weird. And yes, I you know again, I don't know how it was subbed, and I think or how you know how it was dubbed rather, and how you know again, I understand that it comes across a bit weirdly, but if we just you know suspend a little bit of disbelief, put ourselves in this like animated innocent world and assume that none of these men are very actively trying to do very illegal things to her. Like it was just, it was animated and, you know, like put into words in a very funny way. I thought. Um, Well, I I think that I I do look, Scott's going to sit over here and talk about age gaps. And I'm just saying, if you want to have that conversation at any point, let me know, Scott, I'm happy to have that conversation with movies that you like. (laughs) Please. I'm not talking about it. (laughs) I'm just messing with you. Talking um, about an 11-year-old. Oh, sorry. 16-year-old. So much better. My bad. I forgot. <laughs> I forgot that that's so much better. Um, As this is way too like relevant right now. We got to just <laughs> put a pin in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, no. So what I was going to say, though, is that, Jay, I one hilarious scene. But the reason why it, that doesn't bother me is because I think that there's this, like, clearly what they're doing is, like, a little creepy. But, like, the reality is, is that, like, we, I just feel like there's like some element of like us reading that onto, onto the scene almost. Maybe, maybe I'm just like way off base, but I think that like we're sort of primed to read that into what's going on. But I think the truth is th- these guys just like there is like a new person who's like foreign to them, and they're like she's doing this thing to like all of them hate to do, which is like cook and clean and like what is this? And there is this sort of like there is this sort of like creepiness undertone to it, no doubt about it. But I'm, I wonder how much of that is, like, our culture now today, like, layering that view onto the movie versus, like, how much of that exists, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Again, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but I wonder if just, like, there's, like, a little bit more innocence there in it than, like, maybe we're reading reading over it. I don't know the answer to that question, but I'd I'd, I'd like to believe yes, and I think that's ultimately why I'm bringing it up, even though, you know, like, cancel yeah. me, right? But, like, it... it you know, I, I think the counterpoint would be, well, back then it was like, you know, normal and, you know, it wouldn't matter how young she was. And that's like, you know, objectively through today's lens is horrible. But I'm going to go ahead and say, like, that's not, in my view, like what's happening in this scene. Like, it, again, it's yeah, like a yes, little... I think I think to what to your point is that, like, if they're trying to creep on her, that was always that, like, of course, whether it's in 1980s or whether it's now is not OK. But like, I'm wondering, like, are they actually trying to creep on her? Or is there some? Is there is there more innocence involved with that than maybe is what I'm maybe that's what I'm asking. I'd right? like to like, believe there is, but yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, who's to say? We don't have to have a whole discussion about this. Is there that... intention? Is there intention to be romantically weird with someone of her age, or is there intention just to be like, oh, I just like want to be around you and hang out with you because you're doing like I want to be friend, like I want to be near you. Does that make? Is that like what makes yes, sense? No, like you're not in a weird way. I mean, again, it's yeah, still yeah, like yeah. a little weird, but not in the like, you know, predator way that I yeah, think most yeah, people yeah. would read on read onto it now. Definitely weird that that's your favorite scene, but that's fine. We can dissect that in the future. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Like, I'm just kidding. No, no. I mean, like, look, I obviously could have talked about the ending, but you know, just to just to call that out and be different. I'm like, here we go. I always have the benefit of going first, so I can't take the most obvious one every time. Sure. Go ahead, Scott. What was your favorite scene or moment? I'm gonna I'm gonna give Scott the garden scene because I think that really is 
um, a, a, gore a gorgeous scene. Going to give it to you. But uh, look, I there's so much to love about this movie. I think one of the cool scenes early on is the is the train is like the train chase. You there's this moment where they're going down the tracks and they're like, you got to call the police in the town ahead or whatever. And like the old guy driving the train, like they've managed to like mostly escape, but like the Dola gang has like now find their way onto track cars and they're like falling from them behind and they're pulling up and there's just these two massive like tank train cars. And they're like, look, the army's come or whatever. And you're just like, I don't know if this is good or not. And then obviously it's like not good that this has happened, but there's just like, who else could think of these like tank train cars? It's not like tanks driving on tracks; like they're literal train cars that are tanks. It's like crazy. I'm there's just like crazy, silly stuff like that. That's that's constantly happening. And I think that sort of like simp like simplistic creativity that like is kind of obvious, but like I personally at least would like never think of. I think is sort of like a hallmark of what makes Miyazaki so I'm so special. It's just like. Oh, like there's this weird, like cobbled together fantasy plane that they're that the Dola gang is like flying in, and not all of it super makes sense, but it's really cool and it works. Like it's just like little stuff like that. I think that oftentimes sort of sets that differentiates Miyazaki's like films, even in the fantasy setting from others. It's just his simplistic creativity. I almost call it. Now imagine if I didn't say the garden scene after you. Okay, we talked about it. Um, no, I, it is my favorite scene. Again, we talked about sort of the theme of the relationship with nature. Obviously, that was something that was so huge in Nausicaa and, um, you know, coming back here and will continue to be so. And yeah, just that sort of idea of respecting that which is other from you, specifically in the this way, the the for the the robot in the same way that the the ohms were in in Nausicaa sort of fulfilling that role um, is, is something that I think he's able to do so beautifully in, in this fantasy context, right? Make a, a point that can be related to the entire human race really. And, and, and something that we need to do better. But it's also, that thing is so interesting, right? Because like almost the point I was saying earlier, you get the robot at the castle and like, like when they're in the castle on the ground, not in the sky. Uh, and the robot is destroying everything, right? And then, I don't know, like every time I watch this movie, I just get so stressed when you see the robot like approaching them. And it has like the weird boing. I assume that's also in the Japanese version, but there's this like boing, boing, boing as it walks. I just think that that's cool, right? Like it sort of subverts your expectations. It makes sort of the newness of the scene even more salient and when you're just walking around then and you're seeing that there's tons of these robots and they've all died serving the garden serving the city it's it's like kind of like a really sobering like emotional moment when they're looking at the monument i couldn't agree more um all right let's put a score on it uh jay what do you give castle in the sky out of 10 really really solid again we'll probably watch the dub before we're done with this countdown, but for now, 8.8. .8. Scott, 9.8. So close. Um, and I'm at an 8.0. I do really enjoy the movie, even though I'm a little bit lower. Just a couple, you know, little nitpicks. They're just nitpicks. Everyone can chill. Um, I, I still really like it. But Well, now that you're coming right. to chill, I'm going to get really worked up. <laughs> that, 
that's usually how that works. Telling, saying, calm down or chill or whatever is one of the worst things you could say to somebody who's not calm down or chill. Um, but I digress. All right. Um, that should do it for this episode of uh, the Miyazaki countdown. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you have, and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page, patreon.com slash media plug pods. Even if you can't support us over there, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app and check out some like it, Scott, right here in the same feed where you found this podcast. And of course we hope that you'll be back for our next episode of the Miyazaki countdown on which we will be, we, we will be reviewing one of Miyazaki's most iconic films, the 19. 19- 88 fantasy film, My Neighbor Totoro. But until then, for Scott Shelton and Jay Habib, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.